Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Jason McGurr. What can I say about Jason? Uh, he's the drummer for Death Cab for Cutie, which is enough right there. But he's one hell of a drum educator, and it seems like everything he says is carefully thought out, and this conversation is no exception. Yes, we get into the top five influences that shape the player he is today, but it's the little pockets of wisdom throughout that make this one of the most fruitful conversations we've had in this podcast. I personally think that. I look up to Jason a whole hell of a lot, and his perspectives on technique, finding your own voice, and ultimately protecting that voice with a vengeance is something we should all subscribe to. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did, and if you haven't already, please rate and review. Unless you hate it, then just have a good day. All right, cheers. I actually want to start off with a question from Guy Lakata, who's a friend of the show. I saw and that. he wants to <laughs> Yeah, so he wants to know well, he's from Reflex Practice Pad now, Zildjian's conditioning pad, so congrats to him. But he wants to know about your practice pad collection and pipe drumming. Oh man, that guy. Um, <laughs> the mad scientist Guy Lakata, who brought us Reflex yes. Practice Pads. Great pads for anyone that hasn't played them, um, and now very widely available uh, via the Zildjian website. Um, they are the, the most socially acceptable practice pad I've ever played, not to mention a really great conditioning pad. But um, I met Guy in New York um, uh, after a seeing Mark Giuliano play at the Blue Note, and Mark had this tiny little reflex practice pad that was like a prototype and he's like oh you got to meet this guy guy um and i was staying in brooklyn and he we he put us in touch and i went and met up with guy and our relationship was launched and we found out that um we both had this this sort of uh passion and um obsession with practice pads and so we have forever uh, kind of gone back and forth and some matter of fact recently i sent him a mock-up of a fake practice pad that i had took a really nice picture of i just found this piece of like extra rubber at a hardware store that was like 10 inches around and i put it on a a, a, a piece of wood and i sent him a photo with like no words just like to freak him out and he said his heart skipped a beat because he's like no not another pad on the market yeah i mean the first practice pad i ever had was the hq real feel you know i i think i inherited it from the seattle drum school and it was so um cracked and you know weathered that it, it didn't even play that well but it was still it was a cool pad. I actually, before that, I think the very first pad I had as a kid was one of those Ludwig tunable or Remo with the, the you know, the plastic ring you tour with. I, you, I think you tuned it with a Phillips screwdriver, maybe, not a drum key. And they were just as loud as the real drums. So horrible. Yeah, and they moved all over the place. I mean, some of them you could put on a stand. But anyway, um, I threw... We'll, we'll get back into this. This segues into practice pads, but um, I had a really amazing teacher for a long, long time named John Fisher, who lives in Vancouver, BC, and he was a he was a pipe drumming guy, world champion Scottish drummer, and 
he uh, he just basically introduced me to the fact that there's just such a deep world within your hands and your technique and like so many things to investigate many different dynamic levels um and he basically got me off of the drum set like he made me want to just give up drum set and just focus on practice pad playing and my hands in general and this was when i was like maybe i guess i was probably mid-20s and had a i'd been playing long enough was like all right i need to investigate more of what's going on with my playing but um I met him, and he had what was called a Hugh Cameron practice pad, which is um, this pad right here. Really uh, difficult to find. Let me see if I can put it in the light here. Um, they only sell them on Scottish sites, uh, but this pad, there it is. There's his signature, John Fisher. See you soon. Stick with it. You know, classic dad joke there. Um, Jim Kilpatrick, who was another world champion. And then one time I showed up at the, up at the NAM show and I just put this thing on a table to, to talk to my friend Pat Wilson from Weezer. And he thought I wanted him to sign it. And so he went ahead and drove the little Weezer van and signed it. And I just left. I didn't say anything. I didn't say, I didn't really want you to sign it. I was just trying to say hi. Anyway, Jeff Queen signed that as well. But that launched the practice pad obsession. And so going down the path of like, even if I was overseas, like there would be like some random pad that was sold in Australia that like was a flap of rubber that you put on a coffee table, I would buy it. Um, the All the Vic Firth's pads I had, the Steve Gadd signature pad, the, um, even those old school, sometimes you see them in like revival drum shops, you know, the, the blocks of wood at an angle with just the rubber glued on. I don't even know if they were Ludwig pads or who made them, but I was just all about padding and how it made you react and play like the sort of tactile biofeedback sensation given different types of pad surfaces so i think that playing on one pad like let me put it this way a practice pad that's just pure gum rubber super bouncy i don't think it does anything for you i don't think there's anything on a drum set that resembles gum rubber unless maybe you're practicing for your v-drum kit then that might make sense but even a v-drum kit has a different feel you know but i think uh, the reflex pad is good because of the two choices that you have um, in terms of what happens. Like one's a floor tom, one's a snare drum, that kind of a thing. So, you've you've had lessons with Dave Elich, and so have I. So, from your perspective, someone who people come to you to get technique lessons and whatnot, what was your mindset going in talking to a peer like Dave, and what were the blind spots that he found in your playing? Because <laughs> he found a lot of mine. I could I could tell you work with Dave because you're using the term blind spot. I don't know if that was a Dave original or um, if uh, he heard it from somebody else. We all have them, obviously. Um, I went into Dave. Um, he and I just I think he started commenting on some of the stuff I was doing, and and I, you know, was made well aware that he was he was teaching a lot of professional players out there. And I was like, well, hell, I'm in LA. I'll schedule a lesson with Dave. But I've, I've sat down with people all over the world just because I've reached out and they made themselves available. Like if I go to Germany, I'm going to sit down with Benny Greb. Um, if I go to New York, I'm going to sit down with whoever I can find, you know, in New York at the time or, or LA. And a lot of it is, is um, just to get with my peers and to sit down and have them play and just watch them and and get the feedback at the same time and dave i think with every with every lesson i've i've ever taken from a professional with the exception of john fisher and um um 
Stephen McWhorter, who's the current world champion Scottish drummer. Every drummer, drum set player I've sat down with um, has been really great at acknowledging the blind spots that I already know that I have. <laughs> like Dave, Dave, I could have scripted what Dave was going to tell me because I knew I was already doing it wrong. Um, and that's not to discount what Dave can observe and say. The way he put things for me in terms of, about, uh, in terms of posture and like making suggestions um, were great. But it was it was good to hear from him, like the the affirmation, like that's what I was thinking. So glad you agree. Got it. Like I know what I need to do, and of course I need to do more work. I mean, Dave can play circles around me, and you know, there's things that I can do that he can't do, and vice versa. We have that mutual respect. Um, and so to bring it back to your question of like when people come to me, um, I think that I'm always very careful whenever a student comes to me, professional or beginner or intermediate player, I, I'm looking at every person that comes in the door, male or female, kid, adult, whatever, that my job as a teacher is to make sure that within the hour or hour and a half or whatever schedule that they leave inspired and not discouraged in any way. So I'm never going to take down or tear down anybody's um, technique on lesson one, <laughs> you know, or lesson two or lesson three or whatever, it's, it's about embracing what they've learned and not discounting the amount of time that someone has put in. But then sort of like, you know, you can lead a horse to water thing, but you can't make him drink. We, we study and work long enough around the edges so that we get to the place where they, the students or the players realize that there is that blind spot or there's a need or there's uh, maybe a maximum speed or they can only play so low in terms of dynamics. And then I open the door to like, well, here's, here's this thing called sound levels. Here's this thing called stick heights or whatever. So much like Dave and his talk about posture and being able to create, you know, an even flow in your body, like the same thing happens by understanding what it is that obstructs our hands and our feet. And look, I also know, and you know, from touring that like, we may be able to sit in a practice space and free up those pathways and feel and play great. And as soon as you get on the, the expressway or whatever, you know, you get in a pack train or you get on a stage, you fly, you don't sleep, you have jet lag. It's a whole new set of parameters. Everybody knows that. And um, a lot of the, a lot of the students who will come to me sometimes arrive at a point where um, they're just not, their blind spot is, an unawareness of all those other factors, you know, like, why do I continue to feel this way uh, in terms of playing? And so we just kind of, I ask a bunch of questions and we just break it down. And um, honestly, some of the deepest stuff that I work on technically, I don't, I don't put on anybody. I don't say, Hey, check out what I'm doing this week because maybe they're not there yet. That's not to put myself on some pedestal. It's just saying like, when you show up, if you call me for a lesson, you have very much in mind what it is that's bothering you, what you want to work on, you know? And so my job is to like, hear you out, listen, give you my feedback. And that's what we work on. I don't, I don't set up and say, here's my curriculum. This is exactly what you need to do. Steps one through five or whatever. And then you'll get to where you want to be. I don't have a set curriculum like that as a case by case, student by student scenario. And, you know, in the case of like uh, Michael Lerner, who you know was one of your guests recently, um, 
his whole education early on as a kid was like, how can we just be creative as a drummer behind the drum set? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna open up a book. I'm not gonna give you Joe Morello's Master Studies, even though I have it, or it's a great book. Or I'm not gonna give you the Scottish book that's all nutty in terms of rudiments. Let's just see if we can play a song and have fun. Because again, the goal is at the end of every lesson, or it should be not just a lesson. Everybody's practice session is how do you get up encouraged and inspired and not discouraged and feeling like man, I that was a waste of time. So long-winded answer to your question about lessons but well you know it i it's it's great and and michael i'll echo what michael michael said in the show which is some of his the later lessons with you which he feels were some of his most beneficial he doesn't even even remember being on the drum set you guys would just dissect a new queen's the stone age record and kind of talk about it in real time together and talk about what dave was doing and kind of yeah, just be creative together, just verbally. Um, and so, yeah. And he was like, that was a sign of a great teacher. I mean, he has nothing but the best things to say about you. So he's a great dude. Uh, well, I'll say, bring up one other student, um, uh, Chloe Saavedra. Are you aware of who she is? No. Chloe plays with Caroline Polachek right now. And, okay. uh, and I started Chloe and her sister when she was five years old. And they were two little kids that came into a music store where I was working and their mom wanted to buy them a drum set. And the youngest one, Chloe, wanted to play drums, but uh, her mom wanted both girls, both sisters, to have an experience. So I, it was the only time in my life I've taught two students at once for a number of years. And all we did was uh, make compositions, like basically create double drum parts and, you know, vibe together and um one day i found out her sister played piano she sat down and she was singing i was like wow okay well this is going to change why don't you play the drums and you play the piano and we'll just start working on songs together and i had no other stock other than like let's just have fun for an hour and chloe has gone on to do incredibly well and is a monster drummer and when you watch her play you see a lot of things that are not typical of drum. I mean, she plays open-handed, you know, the way she sets up her kid is not a typical drum set. And I think a lot, it's not like I'm taking credit, but I will say that early on, there wasn't rules, there wasn't curriculum, there wasn't guidelines. It wasn't like, you need to do this, or you need to do this, or you need to read music or, or whatever. But my encouragement with all my students, like I said, young or old has always been to just be super creative and free like be in be an individual like there was a time i think when drummers were trying to copy everything that came out on a dci video uh, or a dvd and they just wanted to play the steve gadd mozambique or they wanted to play the dave weckle songo or whatever and one of the coolest videos at the time that came out when i was working in music stores was brains shredding repis on the narnar rad because it was so different it was such a breath of fresh air so i think that um, not to, you know, disregard any of our, you know, any of the players that came before us, but in this day and age, man, you seriously have to be an individual. You got to be yourself. When did you realize that you look at the instrument in a little more of an abstract way? And there's specifically, there's, there's a basic kind of demonstration you did where you just talk about how simple little things on your left foot can create these rhythms that you really don't even realize or you don't think about with your hands. So yeah, when did you realize you think about things a little more abstractly or do you even agree with that? No, I, I do. I, I think from time I was, you know, the, when I got my first drum set, I was 14 and didn't have lessons and it was just a creative time to 
explore the instrument. No one was, you know, other than <laughs> watching MTV, like just before MTV stopped showing videos. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing, which is a good thing. I didn't, uh, know what I was doing. I mean, I still don't exactly know. <laughs> the the first official drum teacher I had was Steve Smith, who owns and uh, founded the Seattle Drum School. Um, he was also, I think he taught Michael as well for a while. I, I could be wrong about that. And he taught Chloe, actually. But he was my teacher from the time I was 19 to 20. And then, like, for a full year, I was driving 100 miles once a week to, to go take a lesson with him. Um, and then I moved down to Seattle uh, when I was 19, but we'll save that for another story. Um, basically, he gave me a whole bunch of exercises that involved a lot of independence. And a lot of independence meaning like all four limbs doing something different at the same time. So my left foot was working like every time I went down there for a lesson. And it was playing not just quarter notes, but dotted eights and open and closed. And um, then I started to mirror patterns so whatever i did with the with the right foot with the bass drum boom boom ka with chicka boom boom ka chicka with the left foot um and it just worked into my playing at that time through the curriculum that he was developing which today is like a, a 250 or 280 page book of exercises i think it's called keys to the city and it's I mean, if anyone wants to do the deep dive in independence, without those exercises, I would not have the left foot. Um, I don't think I would have the left foot imagination that I have these days. Um, but I also blame my left foot exploration on a pair of 1960s Zildjian A's, 15 inch, that were super light and super fast and articulate. They weren't a heavy, chunky symbol at all. So whatever I did, like whatever kind of pressure there was, like just a little bit of heel lift, you know, or getting up on the ball and foot, the kind of hi-hats that would change in pitch, that thing. Um, and so they were really like playful and interesting to find like these different textures uh, in how, how I actually held my left foot on the pedal, let alone using it like for foot chicks and heel splashes. Hey y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me 
use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co. The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out, it's amazing. It's beautiful, sounds great, bye. All right, so I did want to get into. I want to play a song from your from your past, and this actually is a song that I played in Michael's episode. But we just played the beginning of it, and while we did kind of focus on the beginning of the song in the episode, I did want to play now the ending of it when you kind of open up, and it's the song "Subterfuge" by Neo from the album Space Country back in two thousand one, and I want to play from about 2.30 on, maybe like 40 seconds of it, because you do this cool thing, and I might butcher kind of the explanation of it, but the songs at that point of the song is kind of in 5-4, and you're doing kind of a dotted quarter note or a quarter note triplet thing over it, and then that quarter note triplet on the on the ride cymbal becomes the new downbeat, the new quarter note, and it's a really cool metric modulation thing, and it will lead me to my next question, but I just want to play that, and then we can go from there. That metric modulation was definitely my fault. Actually, that idea came from me. <laughs> there are so many pieces of, of my history, musical history, that have been documented that Death Cab fans would have no idea, I think, that it's me because it's so out and uh, nothing but odd times and angular and uh, anyway... Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you've been quoted saying, and thank God that I found Death Cab, because that came along at a time when I maybe was going a little bit too left and needed to be brought back to the center. So my question with that is, where do you think you'd be stylistically and creatively without the constraints, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think you know what I mean, the constraints of Death Cab? I mean, I've always straddled that line between, you know, hanging out with the the trench coats of the smoke hole nerds like D and D kids and you know, the, the, the varsity basketball players. Like I, I'm just saying, like, I, I don't, I don't have allegiance to musos over you know, like singer songwriter. Like we're going to do, this is boots and pants, kick and snare one and three. 
Like I find a ton of pleasure in that as long as I get to do some sort of layer that's underneath that like might have a little metric modulation. <laughs> um, that, that being said, I'm very happy to p play a kick drum four on the floor and a hi-hat on quarters and that's it. Like if that's what works for the song, great. Um, at the time that I joined Death Cab, the reason I said, thank God I found Death Cab is because we are all passionate about riding these waves of inspiration where we go down the rabbit holes of who, you know, name X player, whoever you chase in our development, in a drummer's development, like you, if you're doing it right, I mean, I, well, take that back. That sounds wrong. Um, there are players that like only listen to Neil Peart and that's all they do. And they get that band and they're in that band and they make a career out of it. Great. And there are, you know, players that only listen to Ringo or only listen to Al Foster or, or, or Gadsden. And they just, they just sit in a groove pocket and they make a career out of it. That's great. But I, as you know, when we get to the list of talking about different players that have influenced me, those, those big markers, um, I've always been that way. I am drawn to, I am as drawn to, you know, Elvin Jones and as I am Buddy Rich. And those are two entirely different players, you know, and I'm as, as I, you know, I think the first song I ever learned top to bottom was Master of Puppets. And yet the very first cassette tape that my grandparents gave me was Buddy Rich Time Check, you know, and couldn't get further apart, really. Um, so I think if I had never joined Death Cab, I would still be teaching at Stella Drum School full time. And I would probably be just be playing with whatever random bands around town that I could work with. And because I didn't join Death Cab till I was 28. And there were two separate occasions they asked me to play in the band. And I said no, because I was pl still playing in bands like you just played, where it was musically exciting, but there wasn't a lot of opportunities to go out and tour. And I mean, unless you were in Chicago and you were on some post rock circuit and there was a lot of clubs that you're booking or that were booking your band. Um, I just, I had a good thing going with teaching and uh, for almost 10 years, pretty solid and, uh, or nine years maybe. And I just didn't want to jump in a van and try and go for it with, uh, with a, with a, with an angular, you know, challenging oddball music project. So in joining death cab, what it, did for me was it made me strip away it made me leave all the books and the dvds and the metric modulation and all the the challenging muso drumming stuff it, i put it in the closet i put it in boxes and then i just started listening to songs and lyrics and how i could frame my drum parts in a way that highlighted all those things and i realized that that was a much more universal um approach to the world of music that I hadn't really considered until then. Uh, and uh, I learned, you know, I learned a lot from teachers and books and videos. And then I learned a lot from being in a band and how to be um, supportive in a much different way. So, I mean, I'm, I know it's been said many times in, in your interviews about, you know, people realizing what it's like to be support in a supportive role, but um that was that's what I meant when I said it's a good thing I, I met the band because they really funny story and people could find is I, I showed up for the first death cab practice with charts like I had written everything 
breakdown of not even not just the songs they wanted to play but other songs all written i still have the notation and i uh i played off of the music stand and like two songs in i think ben said okay clearly you know the music so let's just let's just put it away and just play and i was like lesson one i mean with the band and moving forward in 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 my you know whatever second or third act of study as i will call it like this is the band and they it's funny too because they wanted i think initially they they were questioning like whether i was dragging or rushing in terms of time and i wasn't because i'd been playing to a click with students all day long for 10 years what what they were doing was dragging and rushing and they were used to being on tour and so whenever they got to the loud section it leaned you know and whenever they played quiet it was like everybody was laying back and so they thought i was rushing when they were laying back so it, it took it took a little while for us to like figure out how to like abide by each other's like internal pulses so that again just a huge lesson you can't get that from from books or dvds or practicing to with whatever independence you know crazy uh new breed gary you know all that shit is it's crazy and great it's expanding but like is it applicable in a band don't know until you sit down and try absolutely well let's just get into your top five i do have a few more questions but i want to maybe sprinkle them in but let you kind of lead the conversation so if you have the list in front of you you can because i know some of the times i try and pronounce some of these words and i just butcher it so if you want to introduce them then then we can go from there um was number one uh talk talk laughing stock ascension day yes it was <laughs> yeah are you familiar with the band no, and that's why I was actually um, looking at, at your list. Dude, I'm, only from, yeah. all, I'm, I'm not familiar with with uh, three of them, but two of them I am. Um, I started playing music with people like out when I was 15, and they were I somehow got an opportunity to be like the guy in an open mic band, and uh, obviously everyone was 21. I was not. I tried to wear like a turtleneck and act old and like not shave a very wispy mustache uh but anyway i got to play with some people who were you know seven or eight years older than me um and one of them was this amazing jazz pianist named bill mcdonough who still lives here in bellingham where i'm at now and he i was at his house one day and he's like have you ever heard this band and he played it was 1991 and he played um uh talk talk for me and it was laughing stock and the first track he played was ascension day and what you're going to listen to is this song and it's in seven but what was so weird about it is that the way it was divided and played sounded it didn't sound like seven it sounded like something more even like because the snare drum hits on um three and the end of six so it's evenly played everything's three and a half beats apart like the kick and the snare um and i don't know it was also like um, it was also kind of terrifying. It had this really messy, bloody sounding production. Um, and it was just like people in a room. It wasn't anything like say the, the, the pop radio that I grew up with, like hollow notes. And I mean, that was like, that was the stuff my parents were listening to. And I was just a little kid, but when I first started to put an ear on like Michael Jackson and hollow notes and Madonna and stuff like that, that it was such you know signature prints it was such a signature production that this was like a radical change and i don't know if i think it might have been 
the first time I heard a drummer with a snare drum that rang quite as much as Lee Harris, who's the drummer in this song. I'm usually good at picking out seven, but I was trying to find the one on that. That's a that's a tough little bugger. It's a weird one. And again, it was like the first time I heard a piece of music that was really broken and wrong. <laughs> like it yeah. wasn't in tune. Um, it wasn't. It was just very challenging production. And maybe it was time and place. Because, I mean, think about everything else that was happening in 1991. And then I started to dig deeper and find out who Talk Talk was and where they came from and the pop hits that they were responsible for, you know, to the level of a band like No Doubt covering some of their biggest hits. Like they came from a really different place. And I feel like that was when they just went off the deep end and said, fuck it, to all industry guidelines. And that was that definitely punted me into the the netherworld of more avant-garde music um and before that i was playing like i was learning steve gadd you know grooves i was playing late in the evening and 50 ways to leave your lover with cover bands and josie and black cow and um anyway it was a and at the same time i was listening to what you know everyone else in high school was listening to you know like um the pixies and nirvana and pearl jam and um, all the other big records of the time. But that, again, that was like, I don't know what it was about that sound and the way it was recorded that it it was very much my, has been my Desert Island record for a long time. And there's only six tracks on the album and three of them have drums and three of them don't. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, you said Lee Harris? Is Lee the Harris name? is his name, yeah. And he, he went on to do, I don't know much else other than this band called Orang. But Mark Hollis, who's no longer with us, was the singer and songwriter in that band. And um, the producer they worked with was um, Phil Brown. And, and he was all about like placing mics, you know, like in one spot and then moving the band around the mic to different distances so that it could have the right perspective and depth of field for the recording itself. And again, that was maybe that was just my high fidelity moment of like getting super nerdy about recording and um thinking about music differently. It was also the the dawn of my wanting to record myself. So I started to take more of an interest in engineering um, and by any means that I could. So whenever there was a, a unique sounding album out there that seemed obtainable in terms of production, I would, I would sort of chase that vibe. But there's two tracks on that album specifically. It's Ascension Day and After the Flood that are super hypnotic. They almost sound like samples, but they're, they're not to my knowledge. Um, and that is uh, 
as much as my drum sound is is different than that these days uh it was like i said a, a big a big eye opener for me lee harris is a huge huge inspiration well we can go on to number two and uh it's can and this is again case in point why it shouldn't be pronounced is it tago mago sure tago mago tago mago <laughs> i'm go. not sure because i wasn't there when they made it but Sure. And the song is Mushroom. And this is from 1971. So 20 years before Ascension Day came out. Jackie Leibzit, um was, um, man, talk about a signature sound. I think he was so far ahead of his time. Uh, the whole band and the stories of Can, like all living in a castle and recording music t- together. Um, uh, I mean, it's not new news now. At the time I was introduced to Can. I was 19, had just moved down to Seattle, was working at a music store, started to advertise that I was teaching now at the Seattle Drum School, because after after almost a year, they just asked me if I, if I was interested in teaching there, because I was knowledgeable of the curriculum. So I said, sure. So I think the very first student I had was um, the drummer from a Pacific Northwest band called Sage, which you can still find their music out there, but um, they were in the sort of early 90s to mid 90s and the drummer mike williamson um i don't know we just got to talking in the drum shop and and uh he found out that i was teaching and he said i'll take a lesson and we became good friends and early on he made me a like a you know a mixed cd and this song was on there mushroom by can and once again i was very much drunk i mean the feel of this track is sick uh, but I was really drawn to the production, and I was obsessed with how he got his cymbals to crash, which was such short decay. And um, I wanted to do a deep dive on because for me, uh, the sound of a kit, the production of a drum set has it's like fifty percent of the feel. It is it is a huge part of the way things come across, as evidenced by our favorite big fat snare drum, you know, and the ability to put something on top of your drum. And all of a sudden, your whole field changes. Like everything changes just by adding one thing and changing the character. It makes you play different. So this track, Mushroom, just had a just a ton of swagger and vibe to it. And uh, the drummer Jackie Leibzit, um, also rest in peace. Uh, he he just crushes it every time I hear it. Iggy Bomb Yossi is probably my favorite Can album as a whole. Mm-hmm. But this okay. track was where it all started for me. Sweet. Here you go. Mushroom. Yeah. 
Yeah, that and that that I mean, like when you listen to it in headphones, it's like you're you're in a castle or something. You know, you can hear like the close mics on the left, and then the the microphone that's down the hall, like way over to the right, and just the whole separation and everything. Again, without that, if it was just all up the middle, it wouldn't. I mean, the groove would still be great, but again, it's the presentation. It's it's the signature sound of him as a drummer, you know, or any 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 instrumentalist like. If you have a sound that's recognized like immediately uh, versus being more of a chameleon, I just think that you stand a way better chance of having a career. A thousand percent. And that's the hardest thing, which is kind of why I don't think I've found that yet for myself um, at my ripe old age of 34. And I think that's why I enjoy this format of the podcast, because I found so many bands I've never heard of just because I talked to elite drummers and they send me down these rabbit holes and then there's been a few times on this tour where certain things have crept into my playing subconsciously and i'm like oh sweet i'm getting closer to finding something that i pulled from this guy that made it my own that i would have never heard of if i hadn't talked to richard spaven you know so it's selfishly this podcast is about me but then other people get to listen to it and enjoy it as well spaven has an incredible incredible um approach his phrasing is just unlike any other he's probably the freshest player i've 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 heard in terms of approach in a really long time i'm curious i i I wish i could talk to him the drummer of this track what's his name again for for can oh jackie liebzit i have his book over here hold on he wrote this crazy book that came out recently called oh yeah his last name is l-i-e B E Z E I T. This is life theory and practice of a master drummer, and it's it's super heady. It's a lot of math. He invented his own rhythmic language, like his own notation, and talks about his evolution. and And towards the end, like he didn't believe in playing kick drums, so he took bass drums out of his drum set and just he's like, for centuries, people haven't played bass drums, right? They've just used their hands. So why can't I just have a floor tom with a a mute on it and just use that as my kick drum but but his yeah that whole band that whole vibe so cool and quick back like at the time that i was presented can the records were out of print so the fact that you know my cd rip was a was a recording off of vinyl that was out of print meant even more that it was like pure gold and that i really needed to investigate I would love to talk to him and, and ask him in that song specifically, did he hear that effect during playback? I'm assuming not. I'm not sure if the technology back then would be able, but I'd like to hear that song, that beat dry and what he was hearing when he played it, knowing that, oh, this is going to get in this direction after we run it through some stuff. But that'd be... Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of beautiful recordings are happy accidents. I mean, like you and Michael talked about the super raspy floor tom head, you know, at the end of the the, the track. And I, I could see the wrinkles in that head, right, when you guys were solo or listening to the end of it. I think that some of the great, some of the best recordings are recordings that aren't obviously overthought uh, in terms of performance, but also in terms of production, like people did the best they could with what they had at that time and nothing got in their way. I mean, the way that my studio is set up at home, you, you can't see the whole thing, but there's there's four drum sets set up in here right now that all are a different feel and shape and uh, 
sort of, you know, one of them's big with 12 mics. Another one's got more, it's a mono kit, much smaller sizes, all, all dried up, uh, four channels. And then I've got this boiler room with a single pancake kit and, a um, a ribbon mic over it. And that, that sounds a lot like the track, the can track we just listened to, or like a weird Tom Waits recording. And then I also have an electronic kit a little bit further down the room. But at any time, the idea is that I come in and I sit down and I'm inspired and I, I hit R and I start recording with no click, no tempo or anything. It's whatever I feel at that moment in time. And those things often turn into, you know, songs that or loops that, that people want to use. And it was, again, it was a, just a moment of inspiration that was captured, not overthought so much. Um, but I, I think that's something that a lot of people need to consider is don't get all caught up and overthinking the process. Same thing goes for technique, man. If you're thinking about technique while you're, while you're working on technique or playing, it defeats the purpose of natural technique. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no way to tap into your real self if you're, if you're overthinking it. Do you have a favorite record, meaning a song that has a specific mistake in it that you're, I mean, a moment that sometimes stands out to you that, oh, this guitar is so weird or kind of like that, that kink song that, that Michael was talking about? I don't know. It's, it's debatable. I mean, I'll probably, people are going to attack me for this one, but I think that a lot of the playing on like John Coltrane's A Love Supreme is pretty damn loose, but it's, it's, the intent is so 1000% right and on, uh, you know, like people, I remember Elvin, somebody asking Elvin at one point in time, I got to meet Elvin, um, before he died and such an incredible man. Um, uh, and I, I had heard that somebody asked him once Elvin, sometimes you don't always come in on the one, like, is that intentional? And he just laughed and he said, my one is wide. And I, that made such great sense to me. I was like, you're, you're right, man. Like I, I, it should be wide. Like imagine preparing every word that came out of your mouth to have the exact same, you know, imagine if storytelling was one dynamic and didn't change in terms of tone and inflection or anything. It just, it would be boring, right? You'd be put to sleep. So I think uh, I, I can't really put a finger on that talk, talk, laughing stock record. There's one moment on after the flood where it's almost like in the mix they forgot a fader was pushed up on the guitar track and you're you're in this like hypnotic haze and all of a sudden it gets super loud and you almost like want to like turn it down but it's it's just this moment where it was a happy accident and they left it um and i i think things like that are really important i i I think computers have screwed us up in a big way in terms of like having the option to hit Apple Z or undo and edit everything. And we strip the life, we strip the humans out of the performance. So I'm trying to get, I'm trying to straddle a line between, um, you know, contemporary tracking and editing and sending out drum stamps for people that are also, sorry, that are also still providing very much the human being that's back behind the drums, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a song, Classical Gas, by Mason Williams with uh, Jim Gordon on drums. And there's, maybe it's about halfway through the song. I don't think that song was recorded to a click. It's very, you know, very uh, theatrical, the whole, that the whole production. Is that what I'm yep. thinking of? Yeah. 
and there's this part about halfway through where the where it just cuts out the drums cut out and and kind of the the horns kind of do a reintro vamp before the drums come back in and they speed up a little bit and in the recording you can hear he comes in he's trying to pull them back but he's also res- trying to respect the tempo they just introduced so it's this weird like it's on the 15 or something and it's when i try and play along to it i try and do that same feeling he had to create to hold everything together uh and it's a challenge but it's become a hook to me even though in the recording it's a error in timing um but it's one of my favorite parts of that song so i agree i i love that putting on the hat of another drummer or another yeah when you have to obey by those i mean the band was you know leave on um and everything they did was just you can't the those recordings wouldn't work if they were like completely gritted out or <laughs> i mean there's so many songs again this is what this is how we convey our emotions you know is by not restricting ourselves just go for it just play and i've sent tracks to people and they're like and i've worked really hard to have them like really land and be perfect and they don't want them and they're like it's it, we can you do it looser you know looser the better i've heard that T-Bone Burnett, famous producer, has has like called off like tracking. It'll be like, we need to take a break because things begin to sound too locked, locked in, too together. So I don't know, happy accidents, stick with them, right? They're intentional, do it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of not uh, playing to a grid, number three is uh, John Bonham, Led Zeppelin Four, song Four Sticks from the same year that actually that Can song came out, 1971. Yeah, crazy, but, uh, right? Yeah, talk talk a little bit about that, and then we'll we'll I'll gladly play some John Bonham. Um, I was 14 years old and hanging out like classic like scene with a with a friend whose two older brothers, 10 years older, were like under must the hood of Mustangs, like working in a barn, like classic, like handkerchief and back pocket, like. <laughs> um, and this was probably. 1984 or something like that is that right no it would have been 19 1989 or something like that i don't know how old it was anyway um they were playing led zeppelin in like total car mechanic style like cranking through a shitty ghetto blaster and zeppelin came on i was like who is this because i hadn't again i was still coming off of that like listening to pop radio you know hollow notes um in the, at home because it was whatever my parents had on the radio and there was so much attitude in zeppelin it was the first time i heard zeppelin and then i also couldn't count it i couldn't like tap my foot to it and I, that drove me to like investigate more and figure out why and then i realized it was in five right yeah five four is the verses and then it goes to six for the choruses and then there was this weird clicky sound in the drum part on the toms and then i read the title again it's like four sticks i wonder if he's actually holding four sticks of course he's holding four sticks so then i drove me to want to investigate that whole catalog and i think by the time i was i guess maybe it was 13 when i heard it but for my next birthday i asked for the whole zeppelin catalog that's all i wanted for my birthday was every album that they put out so i got whatever 10 all the way through coda and just did a deep dive on zeppelin but it was four sticks not black dog or stairway to heaven or what you'd think um that was the first track that i heard and again just his approach man signature sound undeniable 
Uh, but so cool when a drummer can be let off the chain and play in an odd time and make it groove. So that's what this track did for me. All right, here is Four Sticks after I do a cute little fade in. I mean, we're talking about household names, right? But um, I really loved how Bonham could do anything, but chose to do the right things. And I love how when it came to like making an odd time sound right, like the ocean or something that wasn't a standard 4-4, um, you didn't realize it as a listener, right? It just... It, you didn't question it. Like you can play odd times really odd, just like you can play four four super angular and weird. But I've uh, I've always loved and how like Vinny Caliuda is a great example when he played on that Sting Ten Summoners Tales and playing in seven and like you didn't think about it because there might have been like a common pulse that went through that was making you think that it wasn't odd. So um, Matt Cameron is another guy, and of course he's he's on my list here, but. Um, who would play odd times and, and have them feel not odd. Um, so yeah, Bonham for sure. I mean, the whole catalog, the whole sound, the whole vibe. And I'm only talking about drummers from a ways back. And I'm certainly, that's not to say that I'm, I'm not inspired by, you know, a, someone who's in a band for the first time today, who's, you know, 20 years younger than me. I definitely have those inspirations um, coming at me from all directions, but you know, as we're talking about these big five, we're talking about those building blocks that help, you know, decide how I sounded and who I became as a player. And John Bonham was definitely one of them. I mean, and he even held, this is a very popular song by uh, Led Zeppelin, but Cashmere, he held down a weird time signature just by holding it down. I don't even know what Cashmere would be in. I mean, it's 4-4 because you hear the drum beat, but that guitar part's doing some weird looping thing, but he makes it feel groovy because he's just, he knows when to you know, step out of the way. Yeah. He's like, he's just, he's just an anchor. You know, I think that that's what any odd phrasing needs is it needs an anchor. Um, all right. So let's go to number four, which is Soundgarden. Speaking of Matt Cameron and uh, Bad Motorfinger is uh, the album and Jesus Christ Pose is the song. Again, same, uh, same year as Talk Talk. So 1991. Uh, Matt's a, a buddy. Um, Matt, I've just come to know Matt from living in Seattle, being around Seattle. And, um, uh, he, I mean, he's such a solid, solid rock drummer and human being. And his, I mean, talk about having a signature sound and an approach to drumming. I mean, I could almost say where I was every time I heard a Soundgarden song come on, whether it was 
early on loud love screaming Lo screaming life or um ultra mega okay or bad motor finger or you know i, I remember specifically where i was after a, a sound garden drought in terms of like they hadn't released an album in a while where i was literally in the car getting off the west Seattle, getting on the west Seattle freeway when spoon man came on the radio and i was like what a fucking sound you know just this wall of drum sound and that keplinger snare drum you know greg kepling is a good friend um and but all this was attainable because matt was local you know like i grew up 100 miles north of seattle but as a kid with everything that was happening in seattle in the 90s um the whole music explosion as a young drummer the coolest thing about seattle was like it's right it was like it's right there you can do that like you could be in a band and just drive down the road you know or you can get shows in seattle you might actually still see these musicians come through drum shops and that was the case when i was 19 and first started working in a music store in seattle like dave grohl would come in and sit down and play drums um and it just seemed possible you know it was like it was okay to dream it wasn't unobtainable it wasn't like you're standing on the other side of the river for something you know of something that you couldn't get to because you didn't have a boat most of the seattle musicians were really approachable um, still just walking around town and Matt Cameron was somebody that was approachable in that way and um, um, I got to know him much better um, as as time went on uh, because my wife worked for Pearl Jam for almost 10 years and so I got to see him uh, a lot more regularly on at shows and watching him evolve and navigate both of those bands um, was was you know he's a a real mentor in that way but i've always been a fan of his playing and his phrasing and you know his choices for fills and just i think it's not it seems like the furthest thing from matt's like initial instinct is backbeat he doesn't just want to play a backbeat it, he wants it to be a whole different feeling and sensation so jesus christ pose just really lent itself to being um just that for me like what a radical approach to playing the drums like basically filling through the whole song you know yeah. um in a super tough way but you should play it yeah here you go Those snare hits are so consistent, too. He, yeah, it's Damn. funny. Because Greg Keplinger teched for him for a long time, I would always pick his brain about Matt and his playing. And you literally, um, he hits the, the snare drum in the same spot every single time. He's got one of those, like, like you know, like two-inch size wear marks on a, on a snare drum head. And it's between center and the top. Like, he didn't, a lot of the time, he didn't rim shot. It was just like a, 
slightly off center hit. So it had that sort of hard t attack impact of a rim shot, but uh, I don't know what he's doing right now. Um, I think he's probably doing whatever feels good. Uh, but back in the back in, in that era at that time when Greg was teching for him, he would tell me stories about how Matt, you would stand next to Matt and it was just like, as Greg would say, with big eyes, it's just a fucking wall of sound. Like he somehow just got a massive sound out of the drums and always super solid. And yeah, as a rock drummer, as far as rock drummers go, like in terms of an influence uh, for me, Matt was probably number one rock drummer that influenced me uh, at a time when I was very um, like looking for kind of a path in terms of how to, how to play. And it's funny too, that we, we talk about these records, like two of them are from the two, two are from 1971. Two are from 71, two are from 91, yeah. Yeah, isn't that funny? 20-year <laughs> spreads there. Um, but those are, I, look, the list of musical influences as far as drummers goes, I mean, you're wearing the hat, you're wearing the, yeah. you know, you, I mean, there are, there are so many, it's impossible to, my top five might change next month. Matt Chamberlain is a, another good friend and a huge influence, um, Brian Blade, Steve Gadd, for sure. Vinny, a friend and an influence. Um, uh, Jeff Tane Watts, I mean, from Brentford Marsalis era. There's so many drummers that have influenced me. Or really, Pete Erskine. I mean, anyone that has ever been in the pages of, you know, the classic modern drummer, there were posters on my wall. Jeff Picaro. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, I... I've gravitated towards, like I said, drummers that have a real signature sound, but I'm, I'm, uh, the next track we're going to play is evidence of where I'm, where I'm headed musically in terms of after studying all these drummers and their notes and, and their approach. Well, let's just do it. So, uh, yeah, John Hopkins, the album immunity and the song is abandoned window. And that's from, as you implied a little more recent 2014. Is this a drumless track? Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> Has anyone brought a drumless track in yet? <laughs> no, you are the first, my man. <laughs> so look, here's my here's my point. This is why I wanted to do this. We're we're listening to ourselves way too much. And I 
majority of the students who come to me are their blind spot is what they can't see, which is what they're thinking about that they don't need to think about, if that makes any sense. We all have everything we need to be able to communicate with other musicians. And the more we overthink that and the more we go down the path of investigation, the more we like search and hunt for content that makes us better players, the more we're forgetting to listen to music. The more we're like covering up what's there that's beautiful and needs to be heard. And I, I spent like John Hopkins is an electronic musician. If you follow his catalog, there's some really crazy um, early on like Advan electronic music that's that's doesn't follow a grid at all. It's super feely and weird. But throughout over the course of his career, he is, I would say, played less and less to present like a truly distilled emotional um, catharsis musically. And I basically what I'm saying is, is as I as much as I, it comes in cycles, like two weeks ago, I was all about playing a, a dotted eighth pattern with the bass drum while playing paradiddles and singing each hand individually. Um, and that's that's what I was working on and the dynamics of that. Cool. But when I listen to like that track, it arrests me in a way that like my shoulders drop, you know, any stress that I have drops, like it, it brings me to a, a relaxed state, like a meditative state that allows for a much more open um, uh, mind to creativity, to like, real, you know, to approach to sound on the drums in the same way that you can hit, a, you know, you can hit drums. Well, some would argue it. Some, some would say, Phil Collins would say, if the drums didn't sound good, I just hit them harder. Um, so, which is cool until you can't walk anymore because I'm not saying bad. Phil, Phil's amazing, but like you could do damage to your body. And Dave Elish would agree 100%. Um, You're among friends. I agree. Yep. But you can do damage to your hands. You could do damage to your feet. You could do damage to your brain just by thinking that you're not good enough or thinking that you don't have enough at your disposal, whether it's technique or independence or, you know, your, your um, catalog or library of content or grooves that you can play. You may think that you're not adequate in any of those ways. And my favorite death cab tracks or anything that I've done recently has been more about listening to what the song needs and then bringing something to the table and maybe that's nothing um but i there was a time when i felt like i needed to have a real signature groove on everything that that i was a part of and more and more um i'm just celebrating what i've been able to do what i you know what i still will be playing and relaxing in terms of like knowing that i don't need to play every single note all the time that I could not play. And maybe the song is more powerful because of it. So I am, you know, much like that talk, talk record, the first one we talked about, um, you know, three of those tracks on that album are not, there's no drums on there. So I, I really encourage anyone who's, who's trying hard to practice and, and, you know, really become the best drummer they can be. Um, I encourage them to remember that part of that journey is to not play and to just listen. Um, you also find that you might find that when you do come back to the drums to play, you're more inspired. They sound better to you. They feel better. You're like, my kick drum sounds so good. 
when I hit it once um, versus being buried in a barrage of notes and a barrage of overthinking and thought the whole thing. So that last track was just meant to be a cleanse in a way, like of reminding you that we're not the only ones that need to be heard. If anything, we should be more felt than heard. So that's why I wanted to end that way. But the no, list. I love it. And I, I will say, I think, you know, when it comes to being a singular player, I think you have definitely achieved that. If I haven't already said that to you, um, obviously I've, you've never been a distracting drummer, but you do just enough that people know, Oh, there he is. You know, that's Jason. Oh man. Thank you. Well, I still, still looking to climb. Sure. <laughs> still want to, <laughs> still want to get up there. Um, but I, you know, I think you're doing a really good job of, of not just talking to people who've made it, but people who are, who still have a lot further, further to go because their, um, their impression of the music industry and the journey in general is, is really valuable to, to us mm -hmm. jaded old fucks who've been doing it for a while. <laughs> um, but I will say, um, I will say that, um, my, my journey is, I mean, it is, for anyone that thinks that I'm there, you know, or I've arrived or I'm whatever, there's a, there's a, there's a mini Rushmore somewhere with a Jason McGurr profile on it. Like, man, I never wake up thinking that at all. I have never felt like I'm done investigating or, or searching. And that's, that goes as much for technique as it does for independence, as it does for production and recording and, um, timekeeping. I mean, right now I'm thinking like, who can I go study with? Who's the best timekeeper you've ever heard? Do you have an answer for me on that one? Who's the best uh, at keeping time? Benny Greb is, uh, I, that guy feels amazing always. Well, maybe I'll call Benny uh, after this and be <laughs> like, dude, apparently I need to do some more work with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last time I saw Benny in Germany, all we did was play drums side by side. And he, he really, you know, everything he said to me that day was helping me get out of my head. It was just one of those rough patches of tour, which we've all been in where it's like, man, I suck or, you know, I'm just not, I don't have my tour muscles yet. And, uh, Benny made some great suggestions, but yeah, watching, watching the headspace that he gets into uh, when he's performing is wonderful. And his book is excellent. If you haven't read it yet. I have, I have, I, I, I pre-ordered it and waited like three months for it. Um, yeah, I was one of the first people, the first time he mentioned it, I was like, done, bought it. Cause yeah, learning how to practice is really tough for me. I'm practice. Takes he practice. talks about, yeah, well he, he talks about it. It is his book, but just like if you were to record me on practice, it'd be like, okay, I'm playing something I'm going, okay, you're going in a direction. And then it's just silence where I'm on Instagram for 20 minutes. Uh, it's not good, but speaking of teaching and then we can end with this and maybe I, I might put this further in cause I might want to end on what we just discussed, but have you talking about singular playing? Have you ever had a student come in that is not hurting themselves because obviously I should put a disclaimer there. They're not doing something that will eventually hurt themselves, but you don't even want to touch it because they have such a unique voice that you're like, let's just work on the other stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, I, yeah, if it, it's the whole, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like I, for instance, like I, I've had students come in that their balance point on the drumstick is like way too high or way too low. And so the, in terms of natural rebound, the sticks are doing their own thing and it's maybe sped up or it's slowed down or it's 
uneven, you know? Like, have you ever have you ever considered playing a groove with one stick down low and the other one way up high? Like, try playing a groove on one instrument, so just a snare drum or just a hi-hat with those two sounds. You can't replace that feel any other way. You have to hold the stick that way, so it'll have a thing, you know? And like I'd mentioned before, if you if you keep good time with bad technique, go for it. <laughs> like as long as it doesn't hurt you. But I, the only reason I will make a suggestion to hold a stick differently or turn your wrist or, you know, consider your fulcrum or anything is if what someone is trying to achieve is a different direction. So, um, other than that, like, I mean, there was a time when, when Chamberlain, like the stick, when he was playing match grip, that the, the butt end of the stick disappeared like or or it was it was barely there at all and he had this big callus on his wrist i don't know if it's still there on his hand but like um these are just these are just your means right so whatever whatever you need to do to get your point across and especially if it feels right and it has intent again i'm I'm not going to tear it down um i'll i'll say this one of my students i've told this story before i think but um back when i was at the drum school william goldsmith you know who William is? Played with Sunday Day Real Estate. Oh, yeah. He came in for a lesson, and he was with me for a little while, and we did a, a bunch of independence and singing exercises, but he'd probably kill me every time I tell this story. But um, <laughs> I remember him. Have you heard this, his first lesson? Mm-hmm. He he came in, and uh, he's like, oh, I'm so nervous, and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, dude, you're William Goldsmith. Like, you're amazing. You're a killer fucking player. I, I don't know why you're here. Like, I have no idea why you're here. And I think he came because he was having a lot of tension. So he was worried about his hands and he didn't want to like wind up in a position where he couldn't play. Um, but we, I think I literally like, like a, like a, like a bridge jumping situation. I had to talk him off the ledge of just playing for me. Like he didn't want to play. He was so nervous about it. And it wasn't because of who I was. It was maybe just in his character. And after several minutes of just trying to warm him up and talking through, I, I was like, I just need you to play something so I can see your hands and your feet. I just want to get an idea of, because I don't think at the time I'd seen Sunny Day uh, up close. So, I mean, I had the records, but anyway, finally William played and he, I think he comes right in and within the first beat or two, he broke the bass drum head on the kit just like smashed right through it. And he was like, he was like, oh, and he stopped and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was like, dude, that is amazing. That is incredible that you have that much power. Cause at the time, I mean, William was, you know, maybe five foot eight and 150 pounds or something like that. And he's still, and I'm six foot two and 205. And I, I can't do that. I don't have that kind of Bruce Lee energy. And I, I was trying to congratulate him. I was like, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. The fact that you could just do that. And, you know, I think that that kind of thing is worth preserving. I mean, sure, you could tweak and adjust the threshold and the parameters so that you don't break bass drum heads. And the bass drum head was probably loose. But, I mean, that was the closest thing to, like, Bruce Lee one-inch punch that I'd ever seen. Um, And that's a great example of something that when someone comes in with a thing that they maybe want to work on. I don't want to work on. I don't want to change anything about that. Um, so, and still to this day, and William's killing it. And um, 
I don't have that kind of energy and power and rock that he has. And that's exactly what Dave Grohl, you know, gravitated towards when he started his first band outside of Nirvana. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, there are some things that you just shouldn't touch, shouldn't mess with. Um, and maybe that's, you know, somebody's powerful hands and feet. Maybe that's Elvin Jones posture. Who knows, right? Like if you tried to change anything, like I heard that, you know, Usain Bolt has scoliosis and they tried to like change his running style or take care of him and it made him slower. So if you watch him take off from the line, he's got this like kind of gate thing and then he picks up speed and he's of course the fastest man in the world. So there are some things that we, you know, should just leave alone. They are the vehicle in which we use to get to where we need to be. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at isotope.com. Bye.